Dr. Sean Elian is an extraordinary oncologist, an eternal optimist, medical director, carpenter, closet hippie, until I've just announced it, and <laughs> friend. Um, I'd like to welcome him to the stage with three extraordinary gentlemen for Sung Voice. Thank you. Um, welcome back, everybody, and, th and thanks for rejoining us in our quest. Uh, my name's Sean Elian. Uh, as Sam's already said, I'm a consultant oncologist and medical director at the, the local Acute Trust. And I, I have the uh, pleasure of sharing an office with Sam Guglani. Uh, we don't do any work, we just sit and think. Um, <laughs> for the next hour, we're going to explore Sung Voice. And uh, who better to chair this session than somebody who has absolutely no musical talent and can't sing. That's me. Um, but paradoxically, I'm hugely moved by music and song and would relax to music by choice more than anything else. I'm massively honoured to share the stage with Eduardo Miranda, who will show us how to compose music, Ray Tallis, who will help us understand how we appreciate music, and Bob Heath, who will show us what to do with music. Firstly, can I invite Eduardo to come on stage and give us a brief presentation. Eduardo is the Professor of Computer Music at Plymouth University. He's, he's uh, self-confessed to be working at the crossroads of music and science. He describes how during one of a, a performance of one of his works, he observed signs of bewilderment in the audience. Setting computer composition alongside soloists, and gaining inspiration from animal and insect noises, his work will under, uh, challenge our understanding of music. His belief is that mus the music of speech has the fast lane into the brain. Thank you. Well, first of all, I'd like to thank the organ organizers for the invitation to participate in this um, most interesting event. So, I'm a composer. Um, I understand very little of medicine. Um, I'm still wondering why I'm being invited to come here, but um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I will share with you some of my ideas. On the theme of voice, composers are often um, characterized in terms of their musical voice or style. Um, I must confess, I, I, I don't think I have found my voice yet. Um, but I'm not bothered about it, because I think the journey of finding my own musical voice as a composer is a very exciting one. And I don't want this journey to, to finish. So it's not a bad thing that I don't have my own voice yet. And the, uh, the act of musical composition for me is it entails journeys, um, journeys of exploration into sound. And I'm always looking for new sound, for new ways of making sound. So that is my life as a composer. And, and I, these journeys are incredibly interesting, I find. And I compose music because I want to share what I find in these journeys with my audience. So people ask me, why, why you compose music? That's why I find it, the world of sound fascinating. And I, I compose because I feel the need to share these things um, with others. Now, let's see if I can change that. Yes, I can. So for instance, at the moment, so there's a photograph of me working on a piece that I'm writing at the moment, where I, I'm exploring new ways to play the piano. So in addition to play, placing things in the strings to change how the strings sound, I'm using electromagnets to vibrate the strings and this way I'm looking for new harmonic components that the piano may produce that um, are not produced when it's played normally. <laughs> so these, these journeys of explorations into, into new sound worlds, they do require some sort of compass, a creative compass. So every composer has his or her own approaches to the art of composing music. And my compass, my creative compass, is 
it points to science, to scientific understanding. I'm fascinated by science. And um, I am, my past, uh, before I adopted the, uh, my hat as a composer, I worked on artificial intelligence for a number of years. The first photo you saw before was me in the research lab at Sony um, developing vocal techniques, uh, speech synthesis, and so on. So, um, and within this scientific sort of world where I live uh, in as a composer, uh, computer modeling is very important for me. I use computer models all the time. So I learn how to program computers. I'm proficient in, in computer programming as well as um, writing dots and lines to make music. So today, um, I'm going to share with you a couple of my exploratory journeys into new sounds, and I will focus on the theme of voice. And, um, and this, uh, these two journeys I'm going to present here very briefly, they, you know, one of them is into modeling the human vocal tract. So how, how can one understand, especially myself as a, as a musician, how can I better understand how the human voice works um, using um, modeling? So that's my, you know, one of the things that excites me. And the other one um, is um, an interest I have into evolutionary ideas. And um, I've been trying to understand how music might have evolved so fast, uh, so far away in the past. Um, and for doing that, I'm, I have a photo of two robots there. I'm using robots to model the evolution of song. So, the sounds of the human voice. A voice um, has a very specific auditory signature. You, you may know that, you may need, not need to repeat this here. And these signatures are given by the acoustic properties of a voc vocal tract. So the vocal, uh, the vocal cords produce a rich sound, uh, sound rich in the spectrum, which is then filtered by our vocal cavity. And depending on how we shape our vocal tract, our vocal tract acts as a filter that filters out some components of the spectrum and amplifies others. So the, uh, our vocal cords produce very rich sound, which is then filtered by the vocal tract. So this can be simulated uh, on a computer using filters, which is a very um, well-known method that um, has been developed by engineers. Um, so you can synthesize voice by implementing on a computer filters and simulators that would produce sounds that are more or less similar in constituents uh, to, uh, to the sounds produced by the glottis. So um, with this method of you know, this understanding that I gained by doing this, um, I devised a method for composing which I, I refer to as phonetic grounding. What I do is I analyze recordings of people speaking, and um, in this analysis, I extract um, important frequencies in the spectrum, which are called formants. And I kind of, I have a way to convert the frequencies of the formants into uh, musical notes. So the, the closest frequency of a musical note that is that best match a certain frequency in the vocal spectrum, I associate a note with it. Then I build musical scales with that. So um, you can see here, for example, a um, very simple graph there showing what I mean by formants. These are high frequency components in the vocal spectrum. And these frequencies I then translate into into notes, and these notes have a certain label I give, which are vowels that are associated with the respective frequencies in the spectrum. So uh, just to give you an example of the kinds of music that can be made with this, um, I'll go play, um, ask to play example one. Oh. 
Okay, so that was a, a choral symphony, and the, the words are all made up Latin sort of sounding like words. All these syllables that correspond, the vowels that correspond to specific pitches of my scale, when I write a melody, that those particular notes are sung by vowels that better correspond to those notes. So I invented this language, which sounds quite convincing, and our ear, <laughs> you know, our ear perceive it as, as musical and linguistic and so on, because of this deep connection, structural connection in the composition. I found these kind of things fascinating, that really fascinates me. I also composed another piece using um, the synthesizers um, that I've designed um, to produce um, surreal singing, which I then played with the BBC Concert Orchestra um, at the South Bank Centre two years ago. And that was the bewilderment that uh, was mentioned earlier. The audience was completely baffled by myself sitting with a computer at the back of the orchestra, producing these very grotesque uterances and, you know, with the orchestra. And that is, that is what I mean by looking into new ways, new sonorities, new exciting things that would then take the audience perhaps out of the comfort zone. Um, I would like to play um, example number two, please. question that arises here is, is this voice or not? If it was not produced by a human being and is a, is a machine that's producing sounds that perhaps we would not be able to produce, but then we identify that as voice. So what is it that makes it sound like voice? Perhaps it's a construction of our, our own brain. Now, I'm, I'll go to move on. We don't have much time. Um, to the next, my next journey, um, I'd like to share with you is, um, is with my work on modeling the evolution of music. I know this is a bit contentious, but I'm taking this as a purely practical you know, composer's um, you know, um, way of looking into things. So I, what I want to hear are ideas that will help me in my musical art. But um, I've, I'm fascinated by this field of artificial life. I've been reading a lot about it. Um, so it studies phenomena that's to do with, with, um, with life, with na natural living systems through, through computer modeling. So um, I built a model in my laboratory with my students. My students are clever uh, people because I, I, you know, they are all engineers. And, and uh, I ask them to produce some software for me, and they do very quickly. So they implemented for me a, a model whereby a group of robots, we have six robots looking like this, and they are programmed with motor ability, a kind of a, an artificial vocal system. It's all in software. Um, a simple ear, they analyze the sounds, um, the spectrum of the sounds, and so on, and they have some sort of memory where they associate kind of motor controls that they learn with things that they hear. So they, the, um, what they are programmed to do in life is to try to imitate each other. So they start babbling all sorts of random things, and as the interactions go, sometimes it goes for weeks, they begin to imitate each other. So it's pretty much, you know, metaphorically, uh, like a baby imitating uh, the, uh, the parents. Um, although um, it's not very musical, this kind of simulation. What, what I find interesting is this interaction that can be modeled um, with machines. So I'll show you here a, a movie 
This movie is um, at very advanced stage of the robots interacting, where they have bubbled with each other for almost 10 days here, and then they can evolve a very little, um, short repertoire of little songs that they, they sing to each other. Can you play the, the movie, please? They are trying to imitate each other. They listen and try to work out what to do with their vocal system to imitate each other. Just show my last slide, and then I will um, give away to my colleagues. Um, I have programmed this, the same kind of system to produce rhythms instead of instead of songs, just just, just the rhythms, and I've um, then orchestrated the, these rhythms um, on our orchestra. So I've used the system here to provide me with the rhythmic content, which I then um, have orchestrated. Um, and then I'll finish my short intervention with this uh, excerpt of this composition. Thank you. So can you please play uh, example four, please? I'm feeling challenged, by the way. Can I, can I next feel? Can I next introduce Ray Tallis? Uh, Professor Ray Tallis um, has been described as by Keenan Malik to be one of the hidden treasures of British culture. He's a, he's a man on prospects list of the top 100 British intellectuals, who has been named as one of the Economist's top 20 polymaths in the world. He's legitimately identified as a retired professor of gerontology, a poet, and a philosopher. And his unstinting support for Medicine Unboxed breathes, breathes life into those of us who have been involved in this project. His personal humanity is betrayed by his Desert Island Discs Choice of Luxury, a video of the day in the life of his family. He's now going to hold our hand into the maze that I believe is the human brain. Sean, thank you for that lovely introduction. And Sam and the team, thank you for involving me again. This is my autumn fix. This is when the cognitive function is failing, you know, at the end of summer, and then we have medicine unboxed, and I feel restored. So thank you for having me again. It's been a very polyphonic morning, and as you can see, it's, it's, it's a polyphonic uh, gang we've got here uh, today, all of us talking about the theme, but from slightly different angles. And it's Sean, I'm sure, who's going to turn this polyphony into harmony in due course. <laughs> um, uh, when I... When Sam asked me to speak on the bit of the programme called Sung Voice, my heart sank because, a bit like Sean, I'm not a performer of music, for which many people are extraordinarily grateful, and, uh, but I, for me, music is the greatest of all the arts. Those of us who are involved in writing and literature feel somewhat an inferiority complex towards music. As for singing, I can warn you, if you hear me singing, A, it means I'm drunk, and B, it means I'm going to be sick in half an hour's time. <laughs> and C, you may need to call for an ambulance. So that's the extent of my performance. And in fact, those robots of Eduardo's, which actually were singing in a Brazilian accent towards the end, or it seemed to me, those robots uh, would actually put me to shame. So I'm very glad I haven't got to perform, but what I do need is a knob to make my slides move forward. Now I think it's, um, uh, search everybody on the way out, yes. Oh, thank you. Lovely, lovely, yeah. I press, see what happens next, good. 
I'm going to tell you a little bit about music as therapy and a little bit about music as a biological phenomenon. Uh, I'm going to agree largely, I suspect, with Bob on music as therapy and probably disagree a little bit, at least, with Eduardo on music as a biological phenomenon. Um, I'm not going to do what um, Sean said I will do, either help you to understand the brain or indeed help you to understand music. And the, second, the reason for the second bit will actually come in one of the quotes I've got. But to give you my angle on music, let me give you some quotes. The first is from Friedrich Nietzsche. Someone once said, whatever your position you've got, there's always a Nietzsche quote to support it. But <laughs> basically, he said that without music, life would be a mistake. And that's only a slight exaggeration. More seriously, this is, many of you will be familiar with the terrifying story, Metamorphosis, by Franz Kafka. Man wakes up, he's turned into a beetle, and it's an extraordinarily harrowing tale. But towards the end of the day, he hears some music, and he feels deeply moved by it. And he says himself very movingly, could he still be an animal when music so captivated him? And finally, the quote from Claude Lévi-Strauss from Le Cuit, which is one of his volumes of Structural Anthropology. Music, he says, is a language by whose means messages are elaborated that can be understood by the many, but sent out only by the few. It unites the contradictory character of being at once intelligible and untranslatable. These facts make the creator of music a being like the gods and make music itself the supreme mystery of human knowledge, which is the reason why I don't think I'll be able to deliver on the promise that Sean made at the, <laughs> in the opening to the talk. Let me say a little bit, we're talking about medicine and music, let me say a little bit about music as therapy. I've just stolen a quote from, there was a series of really super presentations yesterday by a quintet of students as a, as a, as, as a preliminary to Medicine Unboxed. And uh, one of, I enjoyed all of the presentations, but one particular essay uh, caught my attention by Helena Lee, I guess she's in the audience, Dementia, Music and the Loss of Self. But here's a brilliant quote from Oliver Sacks. But to those who are lost in dementia, the situation regarding music is different. Music is no luxury to them, but a necessity, and can have power beyond anything to restore them to themselves and to others, at least for a while. And I'm sure this is something that Bob is going to be talking to us about in due course. It's however important we don't understand music in a narrowly uh, therapeutic sense. That would be to, forgive the pun, instrumentalize music. Music, it seems to me, like all art, is an end in itself. And it's not to be evaluated by some outcome. And I can understand, totally sympathize with music therapists who feel they have to demonstrate outcomes. Like if you give people music, then they get out of hospital earlier or the, you know, the cost to the exchequer are less and so on and so forth. We have to play that game, but none of us should ever believe it. Music is ultimately <laughs> about joy. Thank you. Thank you. And as far as I'm concerned, the role of music in medicine is to bring delight to lives that sometimes may have little joy, and I know Bob is going to give some very moving examples to that. So that's a little bit on music as therapy. What about music as a biological phenomenon? Oops, a daisy. Ah, what have I done wrong? Just talk amongst yourselves a moment. Um, it's stuck. And the, oh, thank you. There's a notion that music exists because it serves a biological purpose. And there's a notion that our experience of music can be understood in biological or indeed neurobiological terms. And I want to take issue with both of those. What am, I, what am I doing wrong? Of course, we see something like music, analogous to music, throughout the animal kingdom. And this character is someone who brings pleasure to all of us, uh, you know, round about the spring and in the summer, the blackbird. But it would be a mistake to think of him as a musician. <coughs> Basically, producing those sounds is a biological imperative, which it isn't in us. Otherwise, I would have been dead a long time ago. <laughs> Basically, it's switched on automatically, and okay, it comes when I'm drunk, but not otherwise. And in the case of animals, there's no separation between the creation of music and the performance of it. There's no labor or learning of the craft of composition or performance. And of course, it's highly seasonal. They do it when they're told, and they don't, they don't do it when they're told not to. And it's subordinated to a particular function. So these are some absolutely fundamental differences between animal, inverted commas, music making and our non-inverted commas music making. People say, well, you know, male animals sing in order to attract females. But actually, if you look at how useful music is for sexual selection in humans, it's not much use. use. The love of the craft, as you can see with Edward, is the thing that drives his passion in relation to music. It has little adaptive value in terms of him spreading his genes and so on and so forth. And in fact, there are much, <laughs> at least as far as I know, uh, uh, sorry, yeah, yeah. 
you, you may want to correct that. But there, are, but there are easier ways, basically, of spreading your genes. One is getting involved in fist fights. The other is making loads of money and becoming a banker and so on and so forth. And by the way, women are artists too. So the whole model of music, basically, as a means of uh, uh, driving sexual selection uh, is a load of uh, gonadal material. <laughs> I know. Oh, so. What is fundamental is that, and, and it's true of all the arts, but uh, to me, ultimately, music, is that it expresses several things about us that are utterly unique compared even with our nearest primate kin. Our freedom, which we might want to discuss, our knowledge, our unique hungers, including the hunger to round off the sense of things for all sorts of reasons. In other words, hunger to address the fact that we know that we're going to die after a life of finite duration uh, packed with incomplete meanings. Art is an expression of and a response to these things, none of these things that are true of blackbirds, um, whales, and so on and so forth. I don't mean the Welsh, I mean whales with H. Yeah. <laughs> um, but people have believed that music can be understood by biology, and they've taken their belief even further to suggest that there could be a discipline of neuroesthetics, where you can understand the creation of music or even the reception of music by peering inside people's brains. Well, I have to tell you, neuroesthetics combines crude neuroscience, and I speak as someone who's all of whose research is in neuroscience, with simplified uh, um, understanding of the arts. This is the kind of picture that makes the, you know, the, the punters drool. It's uh, a scan showing the bits of the brain that light up when you listen to music that causes shivers in your spine. And the bits of the brain that light up are the brain areas that are involved in reward and motivation, emotion and arousal, the, arousal, the so-called dopaminergic circuits. Robert, uh, Robert um, Latour and others who presented this work got very excited because these are the very areas that are active in response to other euphoria-inducing stimuli, such as food, sex, and drugs, such as cocaine. Well, I would have been bitterly disappointed if I discovered that because I would suddenly realize that a science that can't tell the difference between getting a hit of bark and getting a hit of cocaine, or between hearing the organ played and having your organs played with, <laughs> says, basically, says very little about either. I, I sort of get a feeling I'm, I'm, I'm getting through. But I mean, basically, Steven Pinker said essentially the arts are using biologically useful activities to biologically useless ends, a bit like masturbation, he said. So that was his. That's, that's why I've got the idea that Sir Matthew Passion is just a long communal handjob. I don't think it is, actually. Um, and I don't think that this character, Johann Sebastian Pornbaron, was actually the, the Hugh Hefner of the 18th century. And I want to end up with a quote from John Elliot Gardner's brilliant book. He was talking about it in Cheltenham a few weeks ago, Music in the Castle of Heaven, which is about Bach. But it is Bach making music in the Castle of Heaven who gives us the voice of God, and I can understand that in purely humanist, atheistic terms, in human form. He's the one who blazes a trail, showing us how to overcome our imperfections through the perfection of his music, to make divine things human and human things divine. So there you are, some thoughts about music as therapy, and some thoughts about music as a biological phenomenon. Thank you. Uh, finally, before I, um, uh, we open the conversation, can I invite Bob Heath to say a few words? Um, in our organization, when we have consultant interviews, uh, we almost always ask the question, what do you do to relax when you get home after a hard day at the coalface, and I'm amazed by the fact that nobody has ever said, in response to that question, listen to music. Um, my, my surprise in that has been enhanced by my reading and listening of the remarkable work of Bob Heath and his colleagues in music therapy. Working at Sobel House Hospice in Oxfordshire and through the University of the West of England, his work with patients in general, and terminal patients in particular, is truly extraordinary. Uh, proof, perhaps, that rather than ask why and how, we should just get on, observe it, and do it. Well. Thank you. Thank you. And to think I volunteered to go third. <laughs> so I, I work in a hospice in Oxford, and consequently, pretty well all the people that I work with uh, are dying. 
Um, I've been there for about 10 years, and um, these people, my clients, have taught me a great deal uh, about dying and living and love and not loving and a great deal of other things. But I think as a music therapist, the most important thing that I've learned is that if I can create a place, a context in which we can play and sing together, and then I can listen to what we're doing with as much generosity as I can muster, then people will generally reveal something in and of themselves, a truth that often um, they never revealed before. Um, I'm not going to talk a great deal about music therapy. Um, I'm in dangerous territory if I even start to talk about the psychology of music um, or the science of it. Um, so I think instead we're going to listen to a couple of voices that I thought I'd place in the room today. Um, the first voice I'm going to uh, ask you to listen to belongs to someone we'll call Eileen. Um, I met Eileen in a dementia care home. When I met her, she was sitting in her wheelchair where she sat all day going, la, 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 la. And in the words of the person that referred her to me, uh, she said, um, she's driving us all mad. Can you find a way to shut her up? <laughs> so uh, I wheeled Eileen off into her room. And uh, for the first few minutes, I just went, la, la, la with her. And then, because I didn't know what else to do, I just changed my la into la, la, la. And I just simply sang. And lo and behold, Eileen sang too. So have a listen to Eileen singing. she died that night. That was the last day of her life. Um, I don't know what you think you hear. I think some people think they hear her singing her own name, Eileen. And some people have said they think they hear her singing Allah. And others have said, no, I think she's singing alive. Um, I don't know. I was in the room. And the only thing I'm absolutely sure about 
is that I heard Eileen singing because she wanted to be heard. And in dementia care, if we think about it, it's extraordinary that our care homes are not full of people who are able to sit and be musical with the people that inhabit these places. It, we don't know a great deal about the science of music. Actually, there's so many mysteries that I'm glad that we can't solve, if you want my honest opinion. The one thing that we do know is if you or I end up suffering from Alzheimer's or dementia, dementia and are no longer able to speak, there's every likelihood that we'll still be able to sing. And through singing, remember a little of who we are. And how important that can be for our families too. The dementia care home that Eileen was in was populated by wonderful nurses, all of whom were from the Philippines, lots of whom couldn't really even speak English and had no sense of any kind of musical context or genre that might have been useful for Eileen. The second voice that I brought along today belongs to a gentleman we'll call David. And David was very poorly too. He was actually in the last few weeks of his life. And he was coming to our day service uh, once a week. And he cut a pretty lonely figure sitting in his chair, not communicating, saying very little, and, on, uh, and more, not, more often than not actually saying nothing at all. On one occasion, I was in the day room with my guitar, and uh, we would frequently, I'd go over there with my Cole Porter books and ham my way through uh, a few songs from the 30s and 40s, and, um, and um, people would join in and sing with me, and this would lead to some conversations, some memories, and very transpersonal, just a very lovely thing to be able to share with people. And one of the patients had requested that we finished with Amazing Grace, so we were singing Amazing Grace, and as we sang it, David, who was sitting down, raised himself up from his chair without the aid of his walking frame and just raised his hands to the sky, reaching out. And I wondered what, what he was reaching out for. God, maybe. I didn't know. But what I did decide was to explore this relationship that David had that I thought with this song. And so the following week, I got him into the music room and sat down with him at the piano. And it, my fantasy was that I would create a few of these chords, a sort of sense of, of where we'd been with Amazing Grace, and whether or not this would recreate the moment when David would reach out. Um, and what David did was to reach out in his own way. And instead of standing up and raising his hands to the sky, he sung this spontaneous, uh, improvised, beautiful love song for his wife. I see you in my <coughs> thoughts and dream of you I dream of you many times <clears throat> you are my wife and 
You should clap, David. I hear you in my sleep. It's so beautiful, isn't it? And that's the first two minutes and 46 seconds of a song that lasted for 45 minutes. <laughs> Nightmare session. <I> guess. <laughs> Carl Young, bless him, tells us that we don't become enlightened by simply imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious. Since the dawn of mankind, since the dawn of time even, mankind has used music and song, our first language, to help make the darkness conscious. And as a result, to help us in our own ways to find our own light. We should keep singing. Thank you. I'm not entirely sure I'm going to be able to speak, so that might be a good thing. Um, it's absolutely amazing. I wonder if I could just kick off with you, Eduardo, and just a thought I had while you were talking there, that part of voice, whether it's spoken or sung, um, is not just the words that are conveyed, but the emotion that's conveyed with that voice. And synthesized voice possibly doesn't have that emotion in it, although I guess if we think, or certainly I don't know whether I'm on my own here, but when you hear that characteristic synthesized voice of Stephen Hawking, mm. it does do something for you. Now, I'm not sure whether that's just because we associate that particular synthesized voice with that individual, or is the voice itself that's synthesized there carrying emotion that's particular to that individual? Do you, do you have a feeling about that? Um, yes and no. I think I've, I've seen people doing experiments in phonetics um, where they try to convey um, to synthesize words with just a sine wave, the most simple sound that can ever exist. So if you, you know, if engineers analyze that wave, they see nothing there that would identify that as a spoken sound. But somehow we can hear it and we can kind of infer what is being said. So I think that a great part of our understanding of what we hear is a construction that's going on inside our, our head. That's my feeling. So it, when I play those synthesized voices in, in a musical context, now there is nothing there that, you know, by itself that those voices would you know, be voices. They are not voices because not, it's not people speaking. But we perceive as voices because those sounds have some the signatures that I spoke earlier, that our brain is tuned to, to listen to. So, you know, there, there is the, the popular effect of the, the cocktail party. That, you know, we are able to listen to a conversation in very noisy environments, mostly because we are conversant in the language we are speaking to. We, we can predict, we are, you know, we are very good predictors. So we can, we can reconstruct inside ourselves things that perhaps are not physically out there. And I, and I think that, you know, that may explain some of these feelings that, okay, uh, you know, Stevie Hawking's synthesized voice is very synthesized, but 
I don't know, we can we can infer something when he says stuff. It's probably because we empathize with with what he's saying, and and that internally we we put content, emotional content, in, into that signal, and I, I, that connects well with the bird. Of course, birds are not making music, but when we listen to, for us the, the, that sound is musical. So that's it's us. You no, know, we are making that musical. Yeah, and I was going to pick up on that because I think it's interesting that you, Ray, you chose a bird to show and bird song. I, I, I don't know whether people in the audience remember this, but I, when one of the many radio stations was in its trailer form, they played bird song mm -hmm. as, as a sort of test. And when they withdrew it, there was a howl of protest yeah. because people tuned into bird song and listened yeah. to it. And it clearly, although it's got a particular function in the bird world, for humans, it stimulates a set of emotions and feelings that maybe aren't there in animals. Mm. Is that just because we interpret it in that way? Or? I think it's true. I mean, in northern climes, of course, birdsong means the coming of spring yeah. and summer and so on. So it, it really brings great connotations with it. I think it's absolutely right. We do, as it were, project into things all sorts of things. So a Rorschach ink blot, you can see a blot on a blotter, and out of that you can extract ghosts, spirits, etc., etc. And it's the same when, it, you, when, when you're presented with synthesized voices. If you like, it's what Eric Gombrich would call the, the beholder's share. We ourselves put in a lot of what, what we get out. Yeah, um, but part, part of this conversation that we're having here over the, these two days is not so much to understand what a set of words or music or whatever does for us as the receiver, but what that person who's talking to us is trying to tell us um, a, a really deep understanding so that we can respond in the appropriate way for that individual. So, you know, I don't suppose the bird's trying to tell us to burst into tears and feel huge emotions or whatever, so we're interpreting that in our own way. So how do, how do we get closer to what, in, in a human voice or a human song, is the message that's coming through, because it was absolutely unequivocally transparent in both of those clips mm. that Bob played. I don't understand why, but it felt like I understood what those two people mm. were trying to tell me. In a sense, you answered your question by listening in the same way as you know, we, we bring to that music. I mean, I thought it was like they were both extraordinary examples, and I have to say, if you looked at outcomes in the usual way, you wouldn't pick it up on any detector. But in terms of utter and total value, as opposed to price, if you think of existential worth, I can't think of two more examples that are really w worthwhile. But it seems to me that we use the usual instruments we use in everyday life. And that's why I think in many ways the kind of the, uh, the idea that you would look into the brain of David and see all the emotions that he's having, I could hear the emotions in the music. I mean, it was just unbearably wonderful and poignant. I wouldn't need a scan to find out anything more. So is that, is that the point? Should we just forget the whole thing about functional MRI, understanding the seat of the, of the soul within the brain? Forget the whole thing, forget the whole bit of science that everybody's striving for, and just get on and... and uh, I think there is one other dimension to this, and that is that, that everyone thinks that they own the music. Mm. And I, I think that... And we do, don't we, I guess. Mm. Um, and so things like music therapy and, 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 and trying to demonstrate the worth of music, one additional challenge we've got is to get people to think about it in a different way because everyone uses music in some way or another. We all self-medicate. Um, you know, I, I did have a conversation once with someone who said, I would never need a music therapist. I am my own music therapist. You know, I have a bad day. I pour a gin and tonic and lie on the couch and listen to Coldplay. <laughs> but, uh, just a thought. <laughs> but to go a little bit further, but I think we, we've got to separate the value of neuroscience in certain areas. And the value we're, we're talking about very narrowly about neuroaesthetics and things like that. Clearly, neuroscience is helping to understand the necessary conditions of um, everyday functions, which are sometimes withdrawn in people with dementia or stroke or whatever. Uh, so we need to separate where neuroscience has an extraordinarily useful place. It is, as far as I'm concerned, the queen of the sciences. But it, there are certain areas where it is remarkably uninformative and unhelpful. Striving for neuroaesthetics is pointless in your view, is it? it... Uh, it's completely barking up the wrong tree. It's basically like trying to understand, if you like, trying to look at um, little ceilings, which is, uh, and, and expecting by applying a stethoscope to the seedlings, you'll hear the, the wind in the trees. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
But Bob, I wonder if you had the opportunity to play that clip, the first clip, to the family of that lady whose voice had been lost. I don't know whether she still had family. Were you able to do that? No. And or even to the staff. Yes, I played it to the manager of the uh, care home where she was. And the reaction? Um, she was, uh, I suppose on one hand, rather amazed that Eileen could do that. Um, but I never got a strong sense that, that, that I was able to convince of, of, of the full worth of that. Because I, I'm, I'm with Ray that I think, I don't know, I'm probably naive in saying this, but if you took either of those clips, put them on a tape recorder, stuck them in front of a trust hospital board or whatever and just said, listen to this and then tell me whether we should be doing this or not, you wouldn't have to write a business case. Yeah, exactly. but the truth yeah. is we've been doing that for a long time yeah. and we're still <laughs> writing our business plan. <laughs> so you're trying to tell me I'm naive. And I think this, yeah, and I think that in a very lovely way. Um, but I think... Uh, <laughs> But I think it does go back to this business of it's, it's really hard to convince people about something that we think we all have anyway. Mm. And that's so difficult. Um, and, and maybe we should just stop trying and just, just keep just doing, doing it, it yeah. you know. Mm. Yeah. So slightly provocatively as, as an oncologist, um, I just wonder, I, I, I obviously have a managerial role in my organisation and we happen to actually have £150,000 just in our pot of money that's sitting there mm -hmm. to appoint a new oncologist in our organisation. Mm -hmm. Collectively, would you advise me to do that or would you tell me to employ three music therapists in our organisation? I have my CV with me, uh, which <laughs> I will pass on to you. And uh, currently for 150,000, you could buy a flock of music therapists. <laughs> um, uh, of course, I mean, it, it, I think we all know it, don't we? I mean, we listened to Fee this morning, and, and the business of, of all of those remarkable examples emerge from people having the opportunity of being listened to. And that's all we're doing in music therapy. We're, we're creating an opportunity for people to express themselves in any way, um, and we're saying, whatever you do, whichever way you choose to do this, we're not gonna critique this. We're not going to say, you can play, you can't play, you can sing, you can't sing. We understand that if we place ourselves in a musical place, we will communicate in this extraordinary way, and we will listen. And, and that's valuable in every context. You know, and I, I, I mentioned dementia care earlier. But of course, in, in, in my business, in, in, in end-of-life care, um, there aren't that many uh, music therapists that, that, that are working in palliative care, but, and there are, I think, two or three here today, those that are know hugely of the value because the patients keep telling them and the families keep telling them. But it's very difficult to, to broadcast that message in a meaningful way, in a way that people really go, okay, well, this really works. Music is not a science. Music is something I've got on in my car. It's interesting. As a, as a composer, that um, tells me a lot of things. Uh, for example, um, well, as you may have guessed from my accent, English is not my first language. And, but because perhaps I have a musical ear, um, I remember very well 20 years ago when I came first time, um, went to Scotland um, to live. And I found myself guessing what people were saying. Well, Scottish accent <laughs> is not the best to learn English, and especially in Glasgow. <laughs> and, and I, you know, it was remarkable that not having an understanding of the words that people were saying, I could pick most of the sense of what they were saying. And, and that is what fires me uh, as a composer. Because, you know, you can explore, you can say things with sounds that perhaps don't mean anything linguistically, but there is an, an emotional, a visceral, understanding of sound that we acquire you know, from a very early life. You know, before we speak, you know, we communicate with our mothers, you know, babbling, and you know, these are very special methods of communication which 
No, I find it utterly fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, I think. Yeah. And, I and this is what comes back mm. at the end of life. You, know, you can see this, you know, all the intellectual things that I keep doing in my music. This will disappear eventually, but that, that visceral communicative or, or impetus to try to communicate will remain. And this is what I, you know, I'm looking into. Now. I, want to, I want to understand this. I would invite you to sit with someone who has profound learning difficulties, no language, mm. and struggles to even make vocal sounds, and take the time and listen and prepare a, a, a context where they can express themselves. And singing with, mm. with that person can be one of the most beautiful experiences. Mm. We just have to put aside any judgments about what yeah. we think mm. we're trying to achieve here. I'm going to, um, I, I'm loath to cut this off because we could sit here for another three hours, but I wouldn't be very popular with Sam. So I, I wonder if you could have the house lights up uh, just for a couple of questions from the audience. I don't know, any hands going up would be great. And just while we're waiting for that, I was surprised that the collective noun for a group of music therapists wasn't a concerto, but maybe... It's a flock. It's a, it's a flock, so I'm surprised by it. Are there any questions from the audience here? If we could get a mic down the front. Uh, what do you think of music in the doctor's waiting room? What do I think of the music in the doctor's waiting room? I, can I respond to that? Yeah. I mean, one of the reasons I do my writing in J.D. Weatherspoon pubs is that basically they... <laughs> no, no, hear me out. Is, is essentially, they don't have any music. And one of the problems, one of the reasons behind that, J.D. Weatherspoon says, not everybody likes the same music. And I have to say, it's highly unlikely that the music would be inflicted on me in a doctor's waiting room with the sort of music I'd choose spontaneously. If it was promised that were, you, know, you could choose your Baroque practice or your you know, <laughs> swing practice, then I'd, you know, if it was a, the patient's choice, you know, no decision about the music without me and so on, that'd be fine. But I've got a feeling it would be something that I would not particularly enjoy. But others may have a different feeling. Um, I can't stand it, um, but I can't stand music in the supermarket either. Yeah. It's, it's happened to me and I know to other colleagues where something very significant has happened with a particular piece of music with, at work and, and at 10 o'clock you're walking around Tesco's and then the tune comes on and it's like, oh, I didn't choose this yeah. and I didn't choose to be placed back into that place that it's taken me. Yeah. And, and, and one thing that occurred to me this morning when we were watching the, the footage of the doctors choosing music to play while they're operating on you. I should choose the music. <laughs> well, no. No, shouldn't I? Imagine if I wake up halfway through my anaesthetic and they're playing Coldplay then. I could be deeply traumatised. No, but, but, but why doesn't the patient choose? There's, um, there's one up at the top there. Um, is the microphone on? Oh, yes. Um, I think the idea of music therapy um, is brilliant, and I really applaud what you do. Um, I, I know Eileen passed away that night, so you won't be able to answer the question specifically about her. But, um, for example, someone with dementia who starts singing, how um, temporary or permanent is that change? So do you think Eileen, next day, had she lived, would have carried on singing or would she need another burst of the piano to keep her going so really the question is the permanency or the temporary um, uh, um, a result uh, I, I honestly don't know because of the circumstances um, uh, uh, when I left Eileen I had to, to finish that session after 40 minutes and her room was next to the the lift so my abiding memory of her is as the lift doors are closing Eileen is still singing in her room. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, we do know that in, in dementia care, it might be that if you go in and, and, and you're working with known songs and with a family, then that, that three or four minutes when they sing that song that means so much to them together, that you'd have to recreate that. And we, I don't know whether they'll remember that five minutes later. But the important thing, you might be able to tell me, the important thing is that for that period of time, we were able to use the song and the music, and, and that's where it has its power. And that's really, ex I, I would totally agree with that. It just seems to me that the idea you've got to have a cumulative effect and we're moving towards outcomes and so on, seems to me those moments are an absolutely unrepeatable value in themselves. And, and I guess that is sufficient in itself. Mm. Um, I'm afraid we're going to have to draw this to a close. Um, 
I think it's been incredibly revealing, incredibly powerful hearing the thoughts from different directions. I just wanted, uh, in advance of uh, asking everybody to thank our speakers for their extraordinary contribution, to um, read a very brief quote from Seamus Heaney, who, um, as you all know, died this year. And he said, finding a voice means that you can get your own feelings into your own words, and that your own words have the feel of you about them. And I think what we've heard now suggests that the feel of you about them is something that we can get to and should strive harder to get to. So can I thank our three speakers? Thank you.